0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Hey, welcome back to Deep Dish Radio. I'm Tim Powers. One of the things I love about doing this show is uh, is I get to meet people that I've always wanted to meet. I put it together specifically for that reason. And uh, occasionally... Um, we get to be friends, and such is the case today with, uh, with comedian, actor, writer, voice actor, um, multi-hyphenate, and uh, damn genius, Phil Proctor, who most people will recognize as part of the Firesign Theater. Um, But there's so much more than that, and I could begin to describe it all, but it's all better described in a brand-new book available uh, on Amazon.com right now called Where's My Fortune Cookie?, which is uh, Phil Proctor's memoirs. Written with collaborator Brad Schreiber, Uh, Phil goes through his life in a very nonlinear way, and you learn about a really smart kid who uh, grew into a very smart adult who was exceptionally talented and very, very lucky and worked his tail off to get where he is uh, today. And along the way, has created some incredibly funny moments. One of them is this show. So, uh, in just a moment, right along with me, you get to meet Phil Proctor. But first, if you like what you hear on Deep Dish Radio, I encourage you to tell your friends. Find a link and forward it on. Post it on your social media. Please tweet it out to your friends. And one of the things that I would deeply appreciate is if you'd go to iTunes. Leave me a good review. If you like what you hear, leave me five stars and tell your friends. And uh, better yet, tell total strangers on iTunes that uh, Deep Dish Radio is, uh, is worth the time involved. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Deep Dish Radio. You can find me on a new Facebook page, Deep Dish Radio. And uh, the book is called "Where's My Fortune Cookie: The Memoirs of uh, Brilliant Actor and Comedian Phil Proctor." And uh, you can you can get it at uh, Amazon.com. But of course, I encourage you to go into your local brick and mortar store and ask for it. Um, I believe Barnes and Noble is carrying it right now. And uh, you can actually visit Phil's website at PlanetProctor.com see some of the other brilliant stuff that he is uh, that he's written and uh encourage you to check out everything he's done if you're not listening to the fireside theater why are you listening to this show there's so much great stuff out there encourage you to check it out and now ladies and gentlemen without further ado my friend phil proctor phil i, I enjoyed the book, screaming through it as, as quickly as I can, and as, as I was saying before we started recording, uh, been a fan for a long, long time, um, and my years in uh, in rock radio uh, meant that I found a lot of albums that you were a part of uh, in the record libraries and uh, and got turned on to a lot of really great stuff. And um, the, the first thing that really impressed me as I got through the book uh, is there are so... Many stories that just kind of weave, uh, weave in and out, uh, <laughs> which yeah. I which I should have expected. It's not a linear story at all. It just kind of weaves, uh, weaves in and out of your life in in chapters, um, and and I thought, well, of course, of course, that's exactly what it's going to do. Um, yeah,
1: we're staggering through life, Tim. Right. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> right. We, we carry. We bravely carry on buffeted as we are by the, the winds of fortune.
2: <laughs> and I, uh, well, the thing that, that struck me as I, was, as, as I was reading it is, why is Phil telling this story now? What is it, what is it that yeah. prompted you to, 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 um, to record? To burden
1: myself? Yeah. At this stage in my life? Yeah. Well, there are a couple of, uh, of reasons. First of all, uh, my, my co-author, Brad Schreiber, who has also written a wonderful book uh, called uh, After the Revolution – or no, Revolution's End, which is about the Symbionese Liberation Army and Patty Hearst's involvement and all that. He's receiving a lot of attention for that book. But the Symbionese Liberation Army played a part in my story as well. And Brad is also a comic writer and lecturer, and we ran into one another – Over the years, at various performances, and uh, both Melinda and I have contributed to some of his more humorous works that are out there. You know, I think his latest book in that vein is called "Like What's So Funny." Okay, but anyway, he convinced me that I should pay him to record my ramblings, and that he would do the the yeoman's work. Of putting it into a book form, okay? <laughs> he'd do the heart, he'd carry the heart, the heavy water, right? <laughs> and then uh, get back to me with it, and I would uh, edit it with him, and uh, and that's what happened. Because I, up to about a year ago, I really was too busy still pursuing all of these, these crazy directions that my life goes in voiceover work and, and, and adding voices to cartoons and to games and to. To, uh, movies into television and to major animated features and then acting uh, on stage with my darling wife Belinda Peterson uh, at the Antias company uh, in, uh, which now has its own theater in Glendale uh, uh, you know great classical theater company I've been with for 15 years mm-hmm. and and basically living life, you know my daughter and my grandkids are now back in LA. And uh, and uh, my dear wife has to have an, an impending operation of ankle replacement surgery. So there's all this stuff going on, you know. Right. And I I figured if I don't do it now, I I may never get to it. Okay. And thanks to Brad, I was able. He was able to bring bring me a draft that I could uh, go through and 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 try to make in my own voice. And and also which helped me remember remember things that I perhaps had 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 said incorrectly in, <laughs> in, right in my dictation to him uh, and and there are still some errors in the book there's there's a couple of uh, uh names <clears throat> there's some artwork that is properly attributed to the right people it's really really a difficult job you know to do it a a a project like this, pretty much on your own, because right. it's all self publishing, right? And and what well, what I basically did was that I gave advanced copies to as many people that I knew who knew something about some of the stories in the book, sure. hoping that they would say, Well, no, no, that's not what happened. <laughs> so, <you> know, <laughs> and I go, Oh, really? Oh, oh, you're right. Yeah. Or, No, no, you can't talk about Peter Bergman like that. You know, I lived with him. <laughs> and, you, know, you, you have to change that okay i said okay what do you want me to say you know and then then i'd revise revise it to, to from the perspective of his wife right you know sure and this is important i mean this is this is the the best way i could approach the the fact that uh that a book of memoirs is exactly that you know it's it's to the best of your ability to recall this stuff now uh, the other reason that I decided to write the book was that my partners were dropping like flies.
3: Oh, okay, yeah.
1: You know, Peter so. Bergman, my beloved partner from Yale back in 1958-59 when we first met, he died of leukemia about five years ago. Right. And and then, much to our surprise, two years later, uh, Phil Austin passed away right. of similar complications of cancer, leaving just me and Dave Osman, Dave's 80 years old. He's got like two stents in his heart, you know, and he's doing fine. And so I said, you know, I better write this while I still can, while I can remember most of it. And let's get it out there, uh, not only for my fans, but because it is a psychic story. It's a story of all of the strange events and the wonderful people that i met uh, in my life up to now and, and how it kind of led me to, to become a, a member of the Fireside Theater and to pursue this really bizarre, multifaceted career that I've had. So I wanted to get that story out as well.
3: Yeah.
2: It, I mean, you, you talk about the, the multifaceted career and all the stories that are involved and, um, and everyone who, who basically did quality check <laughs> for, for your memories right. th- throughout. But now that it's finished right and you take a look mm-hmm. at a at a at a career that spans well over 50 years uh, yeah. what do you the the protagonist in the story what do you walk away from what kind of what what did you learn about yourself in this and i ask that as a fellow who is obviously incredibly self-aware and has been through most of his adult mm-hmm. life
1: okay okay good well i actually i learned that there is there's a path okay, and that I've been uncovering and following, uh, and it's still leading me to interesting places. Uh, but, but I, I guess that the takeaway from the, the book and thinking about my life and everything is really the, the people that I ended up spending time with, more importantly than anything else. I think this is, this is true for everybody. Who, who are you hanging with? Who do you get married to? What is your longest-term relationship? Uh, do you have kids? Did you have love in your life? You know, did, did, are you satisfied with your life? Have, do you feel creatively fulfilled? Are you having fun doing what you're doing? And, and do you feel that you're, in a way, uh, enlightening yourself and, and enriching your spirit? Or is that, does that have nothing to do with your life at all? and you're just in it for the money you know what i mean right. it's all okay they're all valid choices but but for me it was a uh, clearly a spiritual quest and a quest to uh, w- reveal and realize myself through the talents that god gave me you know, as a baby really cuz i as i say in the book i'm i, I was born of irish and amish lineage, a Yoder and a, and a McGonagall and an O'Connor getting together right uh, back in Pennsylvania. And 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 that's where my origins are. My great-uncle Joe Yoder, who wrote the book about our family, Rosanna of the Amish, which is about this extraordinary marriage between Rosanna, a McGonagall, O'Connor McGonagall, and little Chris Yoder in uh, 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 the Valley of the Half Moon in, in Pennsylvania. He had my, my, my great-uncle who wrote the book, he had extraordinary talents that I believe I inherited. He was a, he appeared in minstrel shows. He was an actor. He started choral groups and musical groups in schools throughout the East Coast. He lectured, he sang, and he wrote books. And he basically wrote about the Amish culture. Because at, at the point in his life when he had left, the, the, the Amish community, because his father did so. He was one of five boys. He was a brother of one of the five boys, and he had an objective view of it. And I met him, I met the man, but I feel that I, I inherited several traits that are probably genetic to the, to the Yoder family, but certainly were expressed in him. As a baby, my grandfather was singing, you know, Onward Christian Soldiers or something like that to me, uh, and I hummed it back to him. And he brought me – this is in Goshen, Indiana, right. where the family had settled in northern Indiana. And he brings me down to the parlor, and, and he, he sings the hymn again, and I hummed it back, and everybody was astonished. And that was the last time I ever worked for free. <laughs> I learned a valuable lesson that right. night. Okay. So anyway, yes, I mean, where did this come from? This ability, this like tape recorder in my head – ability to hear music and repeat it, and hear dialect and language and repeat it. You know, that's been a, a through line in my life, and I've taken full advantage of it. I speak seven languages, more or less, and I can and imitate, uh, you know, a legion more, and have done so adding voices to uh, numerous uh, television shows. If you Google... My I M B M or B my B M I M whatever <laughs> all of the crap that I've done over the years. Right. you'll see this extraordinary list of things that I've that I've been in. Yes, or it, my voice has been in. You know, and and that was an extraordinary talent that I knew I had to take care to, to take advantage of. But that's the reason why Firesign Theater happened for me. Okay, well, because I and the other four members of the group uh, could all do different voices and different characters. Right. OK, so when we were sitting around uh, a table in a radio studio improvising, you know, who knows who was going to pop out of us at any particular time that would elicit a response from one of the other members in, in another character voice. So we're like jazz musicians, you know, riffing with different instruments and everything. So uh, this is a long way of saying that I, I feel that for me, life was uh, kind of accepting the path that were the paths that were open to me because of my peculiar talents and learning to diversify them and take advantage of them whenever they whenever they manifested. Because I could have said, I'm gonna be an actor and I could have stayed on Broadway doing musicals, which I had great fun doing in the early years. Right. Or I could have been a straight actor, or I could have continued in a, a television career, or a film career, all of which are very tempting. And really fun, but somehow, somehow, the the Firesign Theater became the driving place for my talents. For as you said, about fifty years.
2: Yeah, there's a, there's a path, but there were also some very deliberate choices that that you made. And and what I what I discovered as I kept reading um, is um, there was a really workmanlike. Um, diligent process that you put into, you know, learning your craft, nothing happened by, by chance. I mean, there, there's, there's some luck there, but uh, you yourself, the fire sign situation or the, the, you know, the, the, your, your fire sign career, and then also the, the new, your present career in, in voice acting all happened as a result of deliberate choices.
1: Yeah, it's true. And, and, uh, and sometimes you regret those choices. I mean, all, all of us in life. I'm 77 years old, so I can talk about this crap now, you know, <laughs> from with a certain perspective. Like, oh, if I'd only said I was going, if I'd only made that choice, what about? But the fact of the matter is, as I review these things in conversation with with friends like you, who have also pursued careers and have had made similar hard decisions at times, you know, uh, you realize that the, there are really no bad decisions. You know, you 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 choose a way to go, and that's that informs everything else that might have been, and it informs things that will happen to you in the future. Because at least you're on the your way somewhere. You know what I mean? You are you're on the the goal path. You're you you. If I had said I'm going to give all this stuff up and make shoes, you know that would have been. An entirely different kind of career choice.
2: <laughs> they would have that been would, hilarious you know, shoes, Phil.
1: <laughs> yeah, they would have been funny shoes, but or maybe even cruel shoes. Thank you, Steve Martin. Right. But but, but the fact is, I wouldn't be talking to you about a career in show business. It would be a career in shoe business. <laughs> and I don't think you'd be interested in that. You know what I mean? If so, if,
2: if you could make it interesting, I, I'd, I'd talk to you about it. But yes, this is far more interesting <laughs> than, than talking about wingtips, for sure.
1: Yeah, but you know, in the book, the things that are weird, like you were talking about luck, and we all know uh, in show business, anybody who's done show business knows that there's a lot of luck involved. Being in the right place at the right time for the right role uh, and at, at the right price, you know, yeah. can lead to, to, to uh, an exciting uh, uh, film role or television role or something that makes you a star you know uh, that gives you longevity and i never had an opportunity for longevity in that regard because i wasn't as available as other actors were who were just pursuing that path i was i had i had to say okay well i can i can do this television guest starring part on all in the family but i can't read for this pilot because that's a commitment that would go on possibly for years, and I've got a fire sign theater career right. that I'm that's going on for years. So I, I did have to make those choices. But the weird things that I write about in the book is like, how did the Firesign theater start? It started because I, uh, I, because of a chain of events going back to New York to do a Broadway musical. Musical closes. Did a straight play. Uh, understudied Brandon DeWilda, who is the boy who cried, Shane, come back, Shane, child actor, very famous. Uh, We became the best of friends. He decides he's married to the sister of one of my classmates at Yale. Go figure. We decide to go out to L.A. together because he wants to resuscitate his film career. We connect up with Peter Fonda. Peter Fonda is working on a movie idea, uh, which turned out to be Easy Rider. And so we go down to the Sunset Strip where the, uh, where, where the uh, uh, young people are having a demonstration yep. against a curfew, right, that they want to impose on them. And so we suddenly become part of what turned out to be the Sunset Strip riots, okay? <laughs> now, during that time, I sat down, you know, because we would not be moved, I sat down on an open issue of the L.A. Free Press, which was the radical press in L.A. at the time. Right. I pulled it out from under my butt, and I've sat down on Peter Bergman's face.
3: <laughs> well, that
1: explains okay? everything. It explains everything. There's a picture. It says KPFK newsman Peter Bergman interviews returning Vietnam War veterans. And I said, KPFK newsman Peter Bergman? Well, well, I haven't seen Peter for years. Now he's on, on local listener-supported radio. I'll call him. So immediately... The cops come in from one side. the sheriffs from the other. Everybody gets squeezed together. They create an artificial riot uh, brandon Brandon gets arrested. Peter Fonda gets beaten up yep. and I was writing for the l a no for the East Village Other, which was another kind of counter culture uh, newspaper back in in New York and I held up my press card, which had a big I on it by the way. And and I think it scared the cops. <laughs> oh, witch boy! It's a witch boy. Because they just they all just left me alone, right? <laughs> and, and the next morning I called Peter Bergman, right? And he says he oh he says yeah fell I'm the wizard. I said uh, okay. So where which asylum are you in, Peter? He said no 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 I'm the Wizard of Oz. I have a show called Radio Free Oz. It's on from ten to two every morning, uh, every, every evening uh, except Sunday, I think. When we all worship Satan, and it's on KPFK, <laughs> just come on down and we'll all play together. Right. So I go, I go to the station that night, and I meet these two other guys, Peter, uh, I mean Phil Austin and David Osman, who are both affiliated with the station and the program. Okay, I think Austin was producing Radio Free Oz at the time, right. and it turns out I don't know how now, Radio Free Oz was the counter, the first and only maybe. Counterculture uh, call-in all-night talk show, okay? So naturally, you know, it was like, well, what's your sign, man? And I said, oh, I'm a Leo. And, and Austin says, oh, I'm an Aries. And Austin says, oh, I'm a Sagittarian. And Bergman says, well, I'm a Sagittarian, too. Let's call ourselves the Fire Sign Theater.
3: <laughs> <laughs> we,
1: we were all fire signs. So perfect New Age name, right? Absolutely. And we started improvising together we found that we all had the goon shows in common, oh. which was, you know, a, you know about it. Some people may, some people may not. But the goon shows were uh, a long-running, very surrealistic, half-hour, crazy comedy show in England during the war years and right up into like the mid to, to late 50s, starring Spike Milligan and Peter Sellers, that's where he got his right. crazy start, right? And and various other crazy cast members. But it turns out that Peter Bergman, when he <clears throat> uh, spent some time over in Berlin uh, making movies, crazy thing he wrote with Spike Milligan wow. for a television show. Wow. Right. In London, he met the great man himself, the great Irishman himself. And so there was that connection. So anyway... We, we found we, we love the goons, we love surrealistic comedy, we love crazy references, we love silly voices, we like sound effects of music melded into what we're doing, even if we have to do them with our own mouths. You know, and, and we started playing together on the radio, and we discovered that the audience that Peter had attracted was so far out that no matter how crazy we were in our improvisations, No matter how silly or surrealistic the premise was, that wonderful audience would stay with us and believe us and follow us into the farthest reaches of outer space if we decided to go there. And so the Fireside Theater was born, and that led to a record contract with Columbia, and then the opportunity to do our comedy on discs, which were uncensored, really, and which, you know, people could buy and listen to in their dorms or their homes or under their beds or in their closets, right, because uh, it wasn't broadcast at that time. Nope. And and so we got away with all kinds of crazy, wonderful, um, subversive uh, political and uh, social ideas. What and an... that was uh, eventually led to our fame.
2: That, it, it's such an amazing opportunity that – uh, contemporary comedians don't have um because you know That's you, true. you had such an audience KPFK at that time had you know had tens of thousands of listeners who um you know were 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 tuned in um and you had no restrictions other than you know your, your other than the, the law, right? You you really could do yeah, what, right. whatever you law. wanted. You didn't have uh you know you didn't have tight programming going. Well, it's top of the hour. We've got to play Aqualung.
1: Um, yeah, you know, that's right. That was all later. That was that that Radio Now stuff. You know, all the hits, all the time, all the same. Right. That was later, and and we the timing for what we did, which was the late middle to late sixties. Uh, when we did our first record, Waiting for the Electrician, or someone like him. uh, uh, That was the time when FM was just beginning to become a force in broadcasting. Now, what you were talking about, really, is narrowcasting. Right. What we would term narrowcasting today, which is you've got a very specific audience. But that audience was huge. Bergman had attracted it single-mindedly, okay? and he decided, among the Radio Free Eyes uh, uh, mm, programs that he created, that's not the right word, uh, uh, spin offs that he created, was a thing called The Love-In. He decided to throw a big uh, psychedelic party in Elysian Park. Right, Easter Sunday, Angeles. right? On Easter Sunday. Yeah. Inv- inviting bands to come and play, people to come and you smoke pot and get high, and have fun, and, you know, and, and the fire, I don't think the fire sign performed, I performed as a Russian poet named uh, <laughs> Gavnov, uh, and I, I read some kind of Russian poetry to the microphone, but he attracted something like 40,000 people! 40,000 people showed up, you know, and that was when we all kind of went like, right. what happened here? What What's going on? And, uh, and that was the beginning of the understanding that there was a wider audience really than just the radio audience that you know that we were attracting the uh, the rock generation to our particular form of uh, of comedy and we were later uh, labeled the gestures of the rock generation by the uh, life magazine or something like that you know and and later the Library of Congress, when they inducted one of our albums, Don't Crush That Dwarf, Hand Me the Pliers, into their uh, historical, hysterical recordings back in 2007, they called us the Beatles of comedy. And it's true to a great extent because we were creating long-form comedy records, much like the Beatles' uh, story form records, Dr. Pepper and... uh, Oh my gosh! A legion of them, right? You know, fully, you know, very lovingly produced, lavishly produced, with uh, almost a story, a surrealistic, <clears throat> poetic story being told in in one LP disc. Okay, and that's what we were doing with with comedy, yeah, multi layered comedy. So so, uh, and we would listen religiously to the Beatles records when they came out, as soon as we could get our hands on them. And and that's why in Nick Danger Third Eye, which was the parody of the uh, noir detective right. radio shows and movies, that opened uh, that reached a wider audience because people kind of could could glom onto what we were making fun of, whereas some of the other records are much more surreal. Don't crush that dwarf is about channel channel surfing, click 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 click, predicted all of that. Uh, I think Roe Bozos on this bus is about the computer revolution, right. which influenced Steve Jobs, which is why if you talk to Siri and you say, This is Worker speaking, hello, she'll say, Hello, Clem, what function can I perform for you? LOL. Right? Right. Right? <laughs> right. I mean, and that's because Steve Jobs was a Firesign Fire fan, and he put that in his homage to the, I think, Roe Bozos on this bus. The character I played, Clem who the computer wrongly called Ah uh, Clem, because I hesitated. What's your name? Ah uh, Clem. Hello, Ah uh, Clem. Clem was, uh, in this album, was a hacker who planted a virus in a government computer mm-hmm. that brought down the entire government future fair. Okay? so And we didn't use those words, but that's what I was doing. Yep. And if you listen to that record, you'll see that that's what I was doing. And he recognized that we were writing about the future of computing and the home computer and when I met him I'd done voices for a bug's life along with Dave Osman right and we we met him we met Steve Jobs because he he had invested in Pixar we met him at the cast and crew screening up in Oakland and he said I'm a big fan of yours and I was I was floored so anyway I mean these are all the twists and the turns of things so it's not my story isn't the story of good luck my story is a story of of uh, coincidence that cannot be explained. Uh, f- phenomenal, uh, uh, phenomenal coincidences that that happen on a uh, kind of an invisible world level. Uh, when, when you read the book, you'll see there's so many of them mm-hmm. that happen. Okay, I'll, I'll give you one more example. Sure, and then you can lead me somewhere else. <laughs> t- well, I've been I'll, I'll about try. Fireside. <laughs> okay, Firesign Theater and how it started with me finding a picture of Peter Bergman. Uh, at that event, uh, many years l- and a few years later, I went back to New York to close up my apartment on uh, uh, 312 West 11th Street, right out from the White Horse Cafe, because I'd been raised in Manhattan after uh, Goshen, Indiana, right. and, uh, and and schooled at school at allen Stevenson School, Riverdale Country School, and then up to Yale before I I ended up. And Bergman had written lyrics for musicals I starred in at Yale written by Austin Pendleton, Crazy. who I just saw back in New York. Right. So, that was yeah, that was the connection with, with Bergman that, that goes back to the 50s. So anyway, uh, I'd gone back to close up my apartment, and I connected up with uh, a friend of Brandon and mine uh, named Diana Dew, who had invented electric clothing for the disco era. This brilliant, <laughs> beautiful woman. There's a picture of her in one of her dresses right. in my book. She invented... Uh, dresses that were, she made dresses that were strips of translucent uh, plastic that would hold a light charge, okay, and glow with a light charge. And you could control the, the, the blinking of these strips in, in the dress or the tie or the belt or the vest uh, uh, to coincide with the rhythm of the music on the dance floor. And in terms of the dress, you could also make it go around in a circle. So there were these incredible blinking electric dresses that she invited and uh, invented, and she and I were—we had an affair, and I was living with her and her girlfriend. Oh, those were the days in the East (laughs) Village. Oh my God, what a uh, lucky man I am! You know, and and at a certain point, I knew that this was over. It was over, and I had to make a decision, and I had to go back to L.A. So. We go downstairs in her apartment, and we're going to have this serious conversation, and the phone rings. (laughs) She picks it up. He says, it's for you, and I pick up the phone, and it's Peter Bergman in Los Angeles, and he says, hey, Phil, we just signed a contract for our first record with Columbia. It's going to be called Waiting for the Electrician or someone like him based on a skit that we did together, and we need you to come back so we can get started writing and recording there is a ticket waiting for you at <laughs> columbia records right right <laughs> so i said diana it's it, it's happening you know Mwah! goodbye and, and the gotta next, go next thing I, know, <laughs> <laughs> I gotta go destiny calls so the next thing i know i'm sitting at bergman's uh, I was living in Bergman's Laurel Canyon house with David Ostman and his wife Tiny, who were also living there, and we're all and Phil Austin and his wife. They lived in Laurel Canyon, so he'd come in for the writing sessions, and we all started this incredible process of writing for records together, you know. And again, how how did that ha- how is that possible? How did that happen? I have no idea. I but it, I'm telling the truth. And I tell it in the book because I feel I feel that that's the story that has to be told, you know.
2: Yeah, and it's it's really um, I mean, uh, and that's that's the through line. So many things just happen. So many opportunities are are presented to you where you're you're prepared. You're like, all right, phone ring, gotta go. And uh, yep, and that's it, just, right. it it has blo- that
1: happened to you in your career, Tim?
2: Gosh, uh, you know, <laughs> it's funny. No, no.
1: no. Mm-mm. okay, well, I know it's happened to other people, and I think it happens more to people in show business yeah. than, than in, you know, because we're really out there. You know, you, you read for something, and uh, you don't get the job, and then maybe in three months they call up and say, hey, you know that thing that you read for? Yeah. Well, they want you to do mm. a, another part in it, right? It's a recurring role. Oh, oh, okay. You know, so, which, which is an indication that what we do in our life makes impressions on people. It's true. Okay?
2: Yep. I, in fact, th- I retract my no. There are some things happening right now as a result there of, you go. of all that stuff. Yeah, you're absolutely right.
1: There you go. And and I think if anybody investigates their life, they will find that that's often the case. You know, whether it's just like you meet the love of your life, your soulmate, under some bizarre circumstances, and, and you know, and you're happily married for your entire life, you know, or... You go through the worst divorce you've ever gone through in your life. You lose everything, and you start all over and become a multimillionaire. I mean, you know, it, it's all—it's all, it's all a, a, the the old universal crapshoot, really. And it depends on on your attitude, right? Right. On whether you whether you, whether you're going to carry on or whether you're going to throw in the towel, you know. And and those of us who carry on are the ones that have the most fun in life, uh, even though we sometimes face great adversity. Now. Are you going to ask about the title of the book or this other bizarre coincidence that happened? That,
2: well, uh, yes. As a matter of fact, I actually got a copy of this book um, while I was in uh, Vegas two days before Vegas was Vegas, and okay, read, there you go. Read that story uh on the plane and when i uh, and when i landed i learned about what happened and that i had just escaped from so yes phil tell me yes. about the title of this book and what it's all about
1: okay and and you just exemplified absolutely why mm-hmm. i had to write this book uh the the opening chapter of the book is about okay <laughs> I never got my fortune cookie. Uh, let's see what it's called. Where's my fortune cookie? Okay. Right. Where's my fortune cookie? And the illustration on the front cover by Bob Grossman, yeah. who was Peter Bergman's roommate at Yale. Man! Okay. Yes. It uh, w- was in the Rolling Stone magazine, and it's a picture of me and Peter cowering under a small round table with Chinese food on it. And the reason that that illustration is there is that the, the book opens with the story of our involvement in what is known as the Golden Dragon Massacre. Forty years ago, this September, in San Francisco, Chinatown, Peter and I had done a performance, We go. uh, The only place it was open that our friend Dr. Bill Alexander wanted to take us to was the Golden Dragon, the most you know popular restaurant in uh, San Francisco Chinatown at the time. It was two thirty in the morning. I'm bending over, having a second cup of soup, and I hear bang, bang, crash, crash, scream, scream, and I feel stuff flying over my head. And I cautiously looked up with my eyes, and I see three Chinese guys, one with a, 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 a machine gun. Another one, or automatic rifle, same thing. Another one with a pistol, one with a shotgun. And they've just killed two people in the table in front of us. So I dive onto the table where there's a nice steel column, okay? And I, I make myself as, as small as I possibly can. I change into a pencil, okay? And I hide <laughs> behind this, this this thin steel column. And, and, and Peter, uh, trusting me, Nobody sees me go under the table. He, with his back to the shooting, drops down on the floor, makes himself as inconspicuous as possible. And Bill Alexander drops to the floor, but he's been shot. Okay? A machine gun slug has ricocheted off the floor and has entered the heel of his boot right at the seam, not even a bullet hole. And and he's still carrying that machine gun slug behind his knee to this day, 40 years later, because it's too hard to take out. All right, so the shooting goes on. I'm lying there. I had learned that morning that my wife was pregnant. My Norwegian wife, Barbara Say, Son, was pregnant with my daughter, Kristen. Didn't know who it was yet. And I'm lying there, you know, with the possibility of facing death or dismemberment or God knows what uh, or uh, responsibility. That's, I really, it was like a yin and yang situation going on in my mind. I'm either going to die, no responsibility or I will be <laughs> wounded, I'll be wounded, responsibility, what am I going to do? Or I'll have a child, and I'll have to raise that child for the next 50 years, responsibility. And it was entirely out of my hands. But the shooting stopped. They were. It, it was a gang war. It was a retaliation shooting by the Joe Fang gang, who were controlling Chinatown at the time, right. even though Joe Fang was in prison, and the Wa Qing, the young Chinese, who were watching when this happened and they were sitting at a table to the left of me about three tables back in the corner and the moment that this thing happened they all dropped under the table so that the murderers couldn't find them and five people were killed all innocent and eleven people were wounded all innocent and the watching they all just they just filed out immediately after the killers left the room well at that time him. This was lauded in the newspapers as the greatest mass murder in American history. Oof. Five killed, 11 wounded.
2: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
1: Mm-hmm. Right now, and I'm, I'm welling up with tears just think, thinking about this, uh, how, how, what, what, what's happened to our country, what's still happening. So anyway, here's the kicker. The entire event had been predicted to me a few months earlier by a psychic girlfriend of mine. Oof. Her name was Sharon, and the way that I reconnected with her was absolutely crazy, totally psychic, it had to do with the fact that I was reading about this guy, Ori Geller, who was bending spoons and had contact with UFOs, and I said to Peter, we were in Chicago, I said, well, I gotta meet this guy, and we go to New York, we're interviewed by Tony Hiss for the New Yorker magazine, Talk of the Town, because we were playing alien characters, Zippo and Gorko from the planet Beepo, <laughs> or Zippo and Beepo from the planet Gorko, it doesn't matter. To aliens, it's all the same. And anyway, I go to the gig. At the bottom line, and there's a message for me from a girl named Sharon. Ch- I don't know a Sharon in an area code that looked like Woodstock. And here was the message: Uri Geller wants to meet you. Huh? Unreal. So, so unreal. So I go on the stage and I do some comedy. Oh yeah, Uri Geller born with a bent spoon in his mouth. Blah 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 blah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yes. It's still funny. Right. So I, I then I call Sharon. I find out it's Sharon, a girl that I had spent some time with when I was sharing a house in Encino with Jeremy Clyde of Chad and Jeremy right. fame. Still a good friend, by the way. We see in London whenever we can. And this was a, a, ma- a huge mansion owned by a radiologist named Dr. Adolph. It had an ape cage, a flaming tiki fountain, and an Olympic-sized swimming pool, and a bomb shelter where we kept our marijuana. <laughs> okay? All right. Again, this was the 60s, the late 60s. Right. We had, you know, hot and cold running girls all over the place living with us. It was a huge house, and we had these these wonderful bacchanalian naked swimming parties every weekend. And, we're, and still, the Fireside Theater would come over, and we'd write our next record. That was the world that we were in. It was absolutely, it was exploding. It was amazing. It was a bohemian world, okay? And and the LP record industry was just starting. was just growing in strength. And FM radio was just starting. And we were all on the brink of these amazing rides, these great successes. And we were all hanging out together. I hung out with the Stones. I hung out with, with Mike Oaks and Phil Oaks. I hung out with... Uh, 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 what's his name Donovan I mean you name them we were all like pals because it was just beginning we were all artists even Dylan I met Dylan we were all artists who were just starting our careers okay so anyway uh, I go up and I visit with Sharon and Sharon Sharon we catch up on a lot of things and she says at one point she tells me all about the UFOs and about the signs of the UFOs which for me is lights going on and off it's in the book, I think, but I don't know if I go into it in detail. But it's it's still it's still going on. It's amazing. It's still going on. It's still going off. Lights as a sign that the aliens are really there. Please right. don't get me started. Uh, stop me. So anyway, she says, I have to tell you some bad news. You and Peter are going to be uh, you and Peter are going to be involved in a, uh, a gangland shooting. After a performance, people will be killed and wounded around you. It will involve foreigners, but you and Peter will 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 uh, get out unscathed. Okay? okay, you still there? Yep. Well, I'm still here. Guys, so, so, you so. Know, but but when that shooting was happening, I wasn't thinking about that. It wasn't till like maybe a week afterwards that I went, oh my god, Sharon predicted this whole thing, and she did. But why is the book called Where's My Fortune Cookie? Okay, it's true that after that event happened, Peter and I had to fly to Boulder, Colorado to do a performance of Proctor and Bergman. And it's true that, you know, part of our material was, you may have seen on the news, the Golden Dragon Massacre. We were there, okay? But luckily, I ordered the duck. (laughs) Yep. And then Bergman said, and I ordered the scared prones. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. A little more obscure. And then he said... But I never got my fortune cookie. Now, that's not why the book is titled that. Many years later, when Peter passed away, one of the patrons of the Fireside Theater, a woman named Gretchen Steiner, uh, ordered fortune cookies for his memorial service at, uh, down in Venice, California. Oh. And I said, that you know, Gretchen, this is so dear of you to order these fortune cookies. It had Peter's name, his date of birth and death, and a quote from Fireside Theater album. I said, that's just wonderful. And you did it, you know, because of the, the gangland massacre, the, the shooting. She said, what? <laughs> I said, Gretchen, you know, the shooting, the, the, the Chinese shooting. Peter and I survived the worst massacre in American history at the time in 1977. She said, you did? <laughs> I said, wait a minute. You, you, Gretchen, you don't know about this, but you made these fortune cookies. Why did you do this? And I swear to God, this is what she told me. She said, because Peter came to me in a dream and said, I never got my fortune cookie. (laughs) Okay?
2: And that's exactly what you get in this book. Oh, my God. If you're not reading this book, you're missing out on so many great stories.
1: (laughs) If you you want to get in touch with me, I'm at planetproctor.com. If you're interested in more Fireside Theater material which is being released uh, uh, on a daily basis by Taylor Jessen, no our archivist. Okay? You can go to, to Firesigntheater.com. And this is just between you and me, but soon there may be an important announcement about the Firesign Theatre archives coming from the Library of Congress in Washington, AC, D.C., so stay tuned.
2: Stay tuned for that. Uh, the this book is available wherever you get your books and Amazon
1: dot Amazon dot
2: com. But I love to send people into their local brick and mortar record store and or brick and mortar uh, uh, bookstore and ask for this stuff. So uh, I encourage you to do well, that. We as well, we haven't
1: printed them in brick and mortar yet, but that would be a way to really ensure that they would you know it would stay around for a while.
2: There you go. There you go. <laughs> Um, it's interesting. Amazon uh, will uh, when I when I pulled up this book on Amazon just to look it up, uh, they recommended packaging it with one of my favorite Firesign products or one of my favorite uh, Proctor products, J Men Forever, available on yeah. DVD. Yeah.
3: Um.
2: I would not. I would not be doing myself any favors if I didn't say that was my one of my favorite things. Uh. It. It actually launched my love of comedy. Completely? Oh, that's
1: wonderful! T- t- tell your listeners a little bit about it.
2: Okay. the The premise is, um, it is a uh, it, it's uh, old. Um... Maybe
1: I should tell them about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell oh. them about it. Too. All right. You know, know what? Let, you me, let me let me give brain. it a shot.
2: Let me give it a shot. Uh, okay, I'm listening. Okay. I'm listening. What we have are uh, bits of old uh, movie serials that have been overdubbed with a through line. Um, right <laughs> right and uh and basically it's uh it's superheroes fighting for for goodness and niceness uh as the lightning bug tries to uh yeah, yeah. tries to corrupt the world through sex and drugs and rock and roll and there uh,
1: you go That's there it. you go That's it.
2: and yeah, uh right and you and Bergman play uh play j men uh in your yep. wraparound around segments in your uh, in your fedoras and and fat ties. And, yeah, black uh, and
1: white 40s style. Black right. and white uh-huh.
2: 40s style, and uh, and everything is is uh, is overdubbed, and just uh, your soundtrack is great. You got Billy Preston on the soundtrack. You got yeah. um, uh, what machine gun? Um, is it Machine, machine Gun, gun Kelly? Kelly? Right, doing. Yep. Well, I just uh, worked with him,
1: by the way. He looks great. He's still got that great voice. Yeah, he does. Okay? Yeah, and and, and uh, lots of other wonderful actors from uh, 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 you know all the people that we worked with. Uh, but we got these we got these republic cliffhanger serials yeah. from a guy named Bud Gruskov and a the producer of this movie which was was originally called The Secret World War right before Peter and I were called in to completely destroy it and, and rewrite it. <laughs> <laughs> right right Patrick Curtis he uh, he wa- was the manager of Raquel Welch before she was Raquel Welch, she was, you know, Ismael de González or something like that. Right. But anyway, he made her career, he married her, he made her. And then, uh, uh, but, but his claim to fame, Patrick Curtis, producer of this film, who hired Procter and Bergman, he's the baby in the arms of Scarlett O'Hara in the burning of Atlanta scene from <laughs> Gone with the Wind. <laughs> I know. Right. I'm I'm so glad he didn't get burned up in that scene, right?
2: It was just a movie film. It's so, okay.
1: Yeah, so anyway, Bud Kruskopf wanted to exploit the old cliffhanger serials, Captain Marvel, Captain America, uh Batman, you know, and we were allowed access to certain characters and others, you know, were were being saved for blockbuster movies sometime in the dim, you know, as yet unforeseen future. Right. But we cut it we cut them all together as you said, into a story, and then we overdubbed our our own take uh, of this story into the mouths uh, of, of all of these characters. And the superheroes, if you remember, are just as vicious and sadistic as some of the Oh, they're horribly the violent, especially the Captain Marvel violent. series, where he's yeah, throwing people off a roof and stuff. Yeah, I know, I know. So in a way, you have to say that that's predictive of of the kind of... Superhero movies that we were have been subjected to uh, over the years, you know because uh, starting with Robocop, my whole problem with these movies and i and i 'm a fan, I admit it, sure. but my whole problem with these movies is the ultra violence of them all, and the fact that innocent extras are being destroyed yeah. at an incorrigible rate in these movies the, you know the, <laughs> the collateral damage in these CGI movies. Is incalculable. So you've right? seen Man All of Steel,
2: of where he destroys the entire city of Metropolis in a, in <laughs> yeah, a fight. Yeah, well,
1: it, it had to be done to save the city.
2: Right. Sure. Right? Does. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> that yep. That's the moral dilemma that we live in right now. Are we? You know, is Little Rocket Man going to go up in in a uh, in a blaze of nuclear glory uh, uh, along with San Diego? You know, is that a fair trade? <laughs> I don't know. The Old Town is still a great draw. Yeah, it really you know? is. It's and there's nice. Some, there's some great breweries down there. I don't want to see them get radioactive. So anyway, I mean, I'm being funny, but I'm also being deadly serious. because yeah. we, We've really advanced. We haven't advanced very far from when I was a kid growing up in New York and uh, practicing uh, air raid drills on the weekends, right,
3: yeah. Not
1: hiding under my desk. So anyway, uh, nonetheless, that movie j men forever is a cult favorite and it deserves to be and it is available it's true we also Firestein just put out a two DVD set of uh our our films because we did do a bunch of films, including everything you know is wrong right okay and and that's like seven and a half hours of our of our film work and we're we're now digitizing other material, so we'll be coming out with similar. Uh, uh uh archival uh television and film stuff for our fans and but also if you're interested in the radio years there's this wonderful book to, if you don't have it I got to get you a copy it's called uh uh Duke of Madness Motors and it contains an MP3 with like 85 hours of our radio show Oh man. Now if you don't have it I don't uh, Okay uh after we've recorded, I'll give you my email address and I'll see that you get a copy okay and maybe some other stuff as well because Christmas is coming <laughs> I'd be honored thank you okay mm-hmm. so anyway that's 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 the pitch uh, and and it's again it's a, an extraordinary thing that even though I turned down uh, the opportunity to do other movies, I did a wonderful film called The Safe Place with Tuesday Weld Orson Wells, uh, uh, Jack Nicholson and Gwen mm-hmm. Wells. Henry Jaglom's first movie, and I've done recently fil- uh, 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 Little Rosen films, and I'm on television on PBS right now mm-hmm. in Francis Scott Key, After the Song, which is a documentary about uh, the attempt to end slavery, the abolitionist movement in at the end of the uh, 18th, century, uh, 18th century. Yes, that's right. And I play a character named John Randolph of Roanoke. And it's a three-part PBS series. You'll have to wait and see if it shows up on your local station, but you can go to the website fskey.com to find out where it might be showing. And I'm very proud of that work. It was created by a fellow named Philip Marshall. Right. Uh, anybody with the name Philip, I love immediately. Anyway. Of course. Uh, okay. And and Philip, uh, he he is the uh, he interviews us, real historical characters as ghosts. So everything we say is in our own words, as, as was historically written. And my character, John Randolph, had apparently a very high, annoying voice. And I used to hold court in the Virginia Senate for, you know, hours on end, but I would show up with my two white Afghan hounds and my beautiful little black serving boy uh, dressed in, in full livery, kind of Chinese style. Uh, You see, this character, John Randolph of Roanoke, had inherited hundreds of slaves from his father, and it was his life's goal to free them all, which he did on his deathbed, and he set aside land for them, but it took them, because of the obstructionists, took them 10 years for those people to settle as free men and women in the land that he designated for them. But it's an amazing story. Francis Scott Key was an abolitionist. He wanted to create a new state in Africa for all of the freed slaves to return to. That was his dream. And my character, who was, I guess, a closeted gay, although, you know, I don't want to spread any stories out of school, but I had a picture of Francis. I had a crush on Francis Scott Key. And, And this guy had a picture of him at the foot of his bed. So every morning I would wake to his beautiful, smiling face, and every night I would blow a kiss to the portrait before I went off into my dreams. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, this is all true stuff, but it still makes your head kind of explode because you see, again, how little things have changed really over time, yeah. in, you know, in terms of our evolution, our emotions, our sexual identities, you know, our, our striving for good and kindness uh, and and try to better the world and better our society. It's a never-ending quest, you know. So be of good faith. It will will continue. There will be a PT, a post-Trump world, right, where where we might be able to reinstate everything that, that he has destroyed again. But, you know, we have to carry on. We really do. And, and and for a satirist like me, yeah. this is such a rich time. You know, I do a thing called Planet Proctor, right? And if you go to planetproctor.com, you'll see past issues. I've been doing it for like 25 years because in the times that I wasn't working with Firesign Theater, I still had to write satirically. I just had to. It was, it was now ingrained in me, uh, and and so uh, I, I I continue the tradition and. I'll send you, when, when we exchange emails, I'll send you the, late, the last couple of editions, and I'm sure you'll contribute to them in the future. Uh, but, it's, you know, it, 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 I, I think it's amazing that the, the major spokespeople for uh, satire today, uh, and satire is important to keep us laughing. Really. Yeah. Uh, you know, a friend of mine, Swami Beyond Ananda, I don't know if you know Swami Beyond Ananda's work, but he is doing a seminar now called Defying Gravity, Okay, How to Use Levity to Survive the Trump Years. Yeah. Okay? Defying Gravity. That's very much my philosophy. And, and yet uh, I also believe that we need to get involved because, remember, Fireside Theater came out of the uh, anti-Vietnam War movement right. of the 60s, right? It was very focused. And it was also the sexual revolution and the uh, and the fact that the younger people wanted to have more of a voice in what was happening. Well, we failed there, I'm afraid. but I, uh, to finish my point, I find it very interesting that the people who are the the, pla- the go-to places for comedy today are john Oliver, Stephen Colbert, uh, uh, Sandra B. Uh, Samantha Bee, excuse me, uh, you, you name—they're basically comedic spokespeople who have done, you know, the Ma, okay, Mar, excuse me, Bill Marr Bill Mar, yeah, and, right. I mean, these guys, and who's the other guy who retired, who may be coming back? Uh, him, okay, yeah. So, you know, that's that's the hope. That's where you go for your laughs now, uh, and and yet, really. I mean, I laugh every day at at the shenanigans that come out of the Trump White House. Can't help it.
2: Right. Well, that's that's the gift that we comedians have. Um, You know, when I when I first came to L.A., um, an, an old TV writer. Uh, who used to write for Burns and Allen and wrote for Jack Benny, sat me down one time and he said, Tim, I got to tell you, comedy's in your bones. You can't learn funny. And you, Tim, got funny bones. And, you know, Phil Proctor has funny bones. And Mark mm-hmm. Maron has funny bones. And, you know, people like us just have that genetic predisposition to satirize or to be funny. Unfortunately, our culture is really tries to shut down satire um in, mm, yes. in 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 yes. political correctness, but that's but what I've learned is that's kind of always happened in the fifties. Harvey Kurtzman published Mad Magazine, and instantly everyone was like, "It rots your brain," you know. Um,
1: yep, you're pe- right. You're pe- absolutely right. And look at Carlin's career. Yeah. You know? I mean the, the ultimate curmudgeon. Uh, I love Carlin because he hated everybody. You know? Yeah. I mean, he really he really said all politicians were game him sure. but, but it's true that that most conservatives seem to lack the, the comedy gene you know they really do and and what passes for comedy in conservative land is really meanest uh, and, and kind of bigoted uh, views of, of things belittling people whereas the satirist is basically saying the emperor has no clothes right okay? and just saying, look, this is what it is. Can you see it for what it is? There it is. It, this is funny. Remember, laughter empowers people because it takes power away from the powerful, okay? Right. Uh, you know, if you laugh at something, it means it doesn't have power over you, okay? <laughs> and that's why laughter is important. It's a liberating force. And Firesign Theater, from the very beginning, what the, the four of us seem to have in common was the understanding that by using the material that was out there, we could deprogram people from believing everything that they hear. Right. So that, you know, ultimately our message was everything you know is wrong. Right. right? You know, get, don't, don't accept everything that you hear. Uh, check it out. Think for yourself. Live your own life. Don't get too affected by it, you know, and, and follow uh, the, the power of love. Love Love is all there is when, when in doubt, you know ask your heart right, and you'll get the right decision
2: yeah, fire sign was never mean spirited you know they say every joke no. has a victim, but it was never um it was never mean spirited and it was never inflicted to to hurt anybody, and that was kind of the through line that I always saw the connection. Um, yeah, you yeah. know, and, and this may be kind of, this may be hacked to point out, but the connection between, uh, the, the, the fundamental American satirists of all time, the Marx brothers and, and fire sign where you guys were all eight of you were <laughs> puncturing, uh, pomposity and, and arrogance and, uh, for lack of a better yeah. term, just the bullshit in culture and in human nature Just going, all right, you know what? We know it's there, but for heaven's sake, don't buy into it all.
1: That's absolutely right, Tim. And we we can add to that Mark Twain. Yes. Right? Yes. Anybody with the name Mark, marks, you know, uh, fits into that that category. And uh, I'm glad that you recognized it. Now, I should mention also, because your last name is Powers, that one of the projects that Peter and I were working on before he passed away was a a, a transcription of – a comedy series that we did on uh, on a show called Heat on National Public Radio, called Power, Power, okay. and it was a it's a parody of the Hollywood scene uh, in the 90s. We did this in like 92, oh, and it's now available as a book. All these wonderful scripts, and by God, they're just as comic and uh, pertinent and contemporary and funny now as they were then, and that's available on Bear Manor Press, which uh, Bear Manor Media, which is you know a, a boutique uh, a publishing company mm-hmm. that that really has uh, has published a whole bunch of Fireside Theater material. Now, this is most of it's available, as I say, Theater dot com. But you can find the Bear Manor Press stuff if you go to Bear Manor Press. Bear Manor Press Bear and, Bear and there's all, Media.
2: yeah, there's a lot of things of interest to uh, to Deep Dish listeners on Bear Manor. But but this sounds fascinating, and, and it's something really to get. Uh, get your hands It really up. is fun. Uh, I want to ask you so about
1: what, what, what are you up to? What are you up to next before we say <laughs> goodbye?
2: <laughs> Funny you should ask. I am actually launching finally, as I uh, as I coast in the middle age, uh, a voiceover career not unlike uh, the one that you uh, you are flourishing in right now. I started Good. at eighteen as a uh, as a radio disc jockey and uh had this voice my entire life uh loved it loved radio loved um you know freeform radio and I was I I I got to play with that just as it was dying um and then had a marriage and that kind of derailed uh that career and had to do the the suit and tie thing for a while came to mm-hmm. LA you know, that marriage ended I came to LA I was a stand up for a while um and and still perform uh still write uh I've got a couple of comics that are being published very soon um, and i and And I got a second marriage which, where things are great and as I started to release uh, the things that happened to me in my twenties, um, things started to happen to me in my late forties. And coincidences, mm-hmm. not unlike what I've read about in this book, are starting to come together, and things are starting to weave together, and people that I've met are are presenting opportunities, and uh, I'm being remembered for things that I did years ago, and people are saying, well, now it's time for this to happen. And I'm just leaning into it, man. It's It's been oh, fantastic. Oh, you
1: know, I am, I am very, very gratified and touched to hear that, because that really is – that is what I think the book is about. Yeah. And, you see, and as a young person, you're, you, you, you're, you're now uh, embracing the faith, embracing the fact that, that these things, your past is behind you, your present is your future, yeah. you're living in the now, and you're moving forward. And all these good seeds that you sowed in the past are coming to, you know, to, they're going to build a big maze that you'll never get out of.
2: Yeah, there's uh there's a lot of a <laughs> no, lot of not, really I, interesting things happening. I, made
1: a, thing I made a I made a cruel joke, but the fact is that every seed that you planted is going to be a nutritious plant that you'll be able to eat to fulfill it's right. a terrible metaphor but you know what i'm talking
2: i don't about. mind being in the maze as long as i can eat i don't care yeah <laughs> it's great
1: yeah right. it's, it's fantastic yeah. and uh yeah, you know that's a good point if you're trapped in a maze that's made of corn you'll never get hungry even if you you'll never die even if you never get out of that maze right you'll right? be fine <laughs> you're fine see i mean <laughs> i made phil
2: proctor laugh um that's awesome um yeah. So so that's me. I want to ask about one more thing. We are big fans sure. of um of Elephant Parts here at at Deep Dish Radio.
1: Oh my goodness. Uh, Michael Nesmith, right? Right.
2: Michael Nesmith who who was also involved in uh some of the Nick Danger products, but Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, he did Yeah, he did, he did a video called uh, Nick Danger in the Case of the Missing Yokes.
2: Right. And um and and you worked on uh on Elephant Parts the first video to uh to win a Grammy. And right. and you worked with the with the great Bill Deere, who has uh, this incredibly storied career as
1: well. Yes, um, yes, absolutely right. So great to hear you know these people and, and admire them. That's wonderful.
2: Yeah, very much. In fact, Nesmith is playing in L.A. on Saturday.
1: No kidding. Yeah,
2: he's really? going to be he's going to be at the Saban Theater uh, Saturday night at uh, eight o'clock. He's uh, he's a guest with Felix Cavallari and Mickey Dolans.
1: Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Well, uh, here's what's happening in my life. Yeah. My darling wife, Melinda Peterson, my uh, co-acting friend. We do all kinds of, of uh, recreations of old-time radio shows together. That's our passion. Uh, then I'll be uh, performing at the uh, R.E.P.S., which is the what call radio enthusiast of Puget Sound
3: wow. <laughs>
1: convention in March and April, I think it is, and I'll be raising money for Des Arts Performs in Palm Springs uh, with my wife and Fred Willard and maybe Martin Mull as well uh, at, at, at on, uh, let's see, on March the uh, 7th and 8th, uh, Des Arts Performs uh, on the air, fifth year on the air. These are, you know, using old-time radio shows uh, to raise money for various things, or simply to play to enthusiasts who want to keep old-time radio alive. You were talking about Mad Magazine. We'll get back to the thread in a minute. Mad Magazine, great, great uh, influence on me. Several. I wrote several letters to them, which are, which are published in their collected works. And Bob and Ray.
3: Yes,
2: Bob and Ray. Bob and
1: Ray. Yes, Bob and right? Ray. Bob and Ray two of my greatest heroes, and I used to write funny postcards to them, which <laughs> they'd, read, they'd read on the air. That's was awesome. My first, yeah, my first writing publicly exposed on the air it was on the Bob and Ray radio show in New York because uh, I used to listen to it in the morning before I went off to school. And then Ernie Kovacs. Oh, yes. Ernie Kovacs, mm-hmm. He was the most surreal of them all, and I just ate him up. You know, because was, he was doing... Surrealistic live television on network you know? television. Yeah, network television. Genius, genius. So anyway, some of the influences that that I sometimes forget to mention. Uh, and uh, uh, and let's see you now, the thread went back to
2: old time uh, radio, Deer, and then all the way back to Bill Deere and Elephant
1: Parts. Bill Deere. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Repo Man. Yeah, Bill Deere. Did you get to know his work? Through the Fire Sign piece or through Repo Man or something else? Well, through, How do you know him? Through
2: Elephant Parts, actually. I am Ele- oh
1: yeah, Elephant Parts. Uh, oh, I'd forgotten that that's where he started. That's why he knew Firesign Theater, of mm-hmm. course. Of course. Yep. And you know, Elephant Parts Elephant Parts uh, was part of the 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 time when uh, I also appeared in Amazon Women on the Moon. Right. Okay. And uh, Lobster Man from Mars mm-hmm. where I had scenes with the great Tony Curtis. Yeah, you did. Okay? But that was the time when when Michael did that where where those kinds of wonderful short-form movies were all the rage. Oh, and by the way, that started, really, if you think about it, with Tunnel Vision yeah. by Neil Israel.
2: Yeah. Okay?
3: Oh, you're
1: right. Where I played the head of the network, and I got that job right off of, that was like 1972, something like that right after doing Henry Jaglund's *The Safe Place with Orson Welles and Jack Nicholson. And, you know, I was, that was kind of like a little a burp in the Firesign career where I was able to do some movie work. And those cut-up movies, I'm telling you, they're the best. And when you look back at, like, Tunnel Vision, you'll see Chevy Chase and all kinds of people who, were, who went on to have great careers, yep. you know. But we were all absolutely... I'm so excited to be able to be part of these these crazy movies and also television shows. I was in uh, a television series, comedy, surrealistic comedy series called No Soap Radio.
3: Yeah.
2: Okay.
1: Yeah. With John Larroquette and oh god, I can't even remember. ABC's oh, Thursday TV. at nine. You know that. You know that show. Mm-hmm. You're amazing. Thank you. I guess you have you have magical powers. I have
2: uh, I have funny bones, Phil. I I have been a, a fan of comedy as long as I can remember, and you wow. kind of kicked that snowball down the mountain. Yes, no soap radio. Uh, I even got the reference in the title, which was fantastic. What a weird show! How many how many episodes did that run?
1: Oh, I don't know. I have to Google it. You know, one of the things about a career, and I, I have a career which means that I'm always looking at my rear. I'm always looking backwards. <laughs> I'm in a car that's moving forward, and I look back to my rear of the car to see where I've been. <clears throat> you know, you, 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 you move so rapidly. If you're lucky and you have a lot of these experiences, <clears throat> pardon me, most of wh- mine, of which are very diverse, I really have to use the search instrument if I want to find out, because I have a terrible sense of, of uh, chronological memory. I'm Just awful and and so i have to utilize the tools at our disposal to say oh my god look at all the people who were in that show and that went from then to then and i did it then and oh my i mean you know right. it, it's it's revealing and it's fun for me but it's not something that's at the tip of my iceberg if you catch the reference i get it, I get or, it. The drift, or the for drift for that matter cuz icebergs drift
2: yes they do <laughs> Yes, and I'm
1: not frozen in time yet.
2: Not yet. And and I'm not okay. Not yet. You're not crunchy. You're not. Uh, you're not collapsing giant ocean liners.
1: That's right. And I'm not displacing Disney in the in the cryogenic tube. You <laughs> know, so it's okay. Okay. Cryogenics, me a river, please. Ooh. that's a Bergman. Yeah, that's a Bergman. That's a beautiful. I will one. not take responsible for that moan.
2: That is uh, absolutely beautiful. Are you kidding? This has been so much fun. Uh, Let's plug the book one more time. Give me the title. Uh,
1: Where's my fortune cookie? Available. Where's my fortune cookie? (laughs) I guess you could put a comma in there if you wanted to.
2: Give me an A, B, and C read on the title.
1: Oh, I see three different reads. Oh, you were you were being you had to do it like this. Oh, uh, that was good, Phil. But let's just let's have some fun with it this time. You just got to give me give me an ABC rating on it, will you? Uh, Phil,
2: oh, Phil, okay. Phil, that's great. Can I um, can I can I get a read? Can I get an ABC on it? Thanks.
1: Okay, I thought the last one was great, but okay, hold on here. <laughs> Where's my fortune cookie? Here too. Try be Where's my fortune cookie? That's uh, probably that's too nuts, not politically correct. Okay, let's try one more. Where's my fortune cookie?
2: There you go. And so, you know you, you so know like they're going to have... pick the Mickey Rooney from from Breakfast at Tiffany's Read, too, and put it out there, right?
1: <laughs> right. Which, which also starred Kip King in a featured role. Do you know who he is?
2: Wait. I should. I really Kip should.
1: Kip King. Groundlings. Right,
2: right, 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 right. Uh,
1: okay. And what's his son's name? Uh...
2: Chris Catan. Chris Catan, yeah.
1: Chris Catan. Uh, and he—he and he, when you see that movie, and you see he delivers Chinese food or something, okay? Right. Uh, Kip King, I'm talking about. He looks like Jerry Lewis. And Jerry Lewis picked him as his protege to succeed him when he died. Now, of course, Kip King died much earlier than Jerry Lewis. Right. But but if you see that movie, you'll go, oh, my God, that's a young Jerry Lewis. And Kip had this strange history with Jerry where until he reached a certain point where he said uh, Jerry, Jerry's control over him was becoming so oppressive and so ego-destroying and so limiting to his career that he finally made up a story. He said, Jerry... I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to join the Army. And Jerry said, you're going to join the Army? What are you talking about? He said, I, 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 f- I feel like I need to fight for my country. I'm going to join the Army. And that was it. He said, okay, you're out of my life. And they escorted him off of his boat, wherever he was at the time. And that was the end of his association. Now, I have an association with Jerry Lewis, which is in the book, do you remember what that was? Mm, uh, okay, I'm not going to. It's not a test. All right. It's okay. <clears throat> and I have to warn you, Tim, it may not be in the book. Um, I, You know, I tried to remember. I was going to say. I I, all
2: right. See, I, I was still working up a Sammy Petrillo joke.
1: Sammy Petrillo? Yeah. Now, that's really
2: obscure. Thank you.
1: Yes. I, I'm giving you a gold star now. Wait, I have to lick it, uh, put it up on the wall. Thank you. Next to, oh, no, that's next to my brush. Toothbrushing thing. Hold on. (laughs) Over here into obscure references. There. Okay. Thank you. It's sticking to the tile. That's good. So, Jerry Lewis, when I was in grade school, Alice Stevenson School, East 78th Street in New York, still there, grade school, uh, uh, we collected money for the first Jerry Lewis telethon, and I, because of my prowess playing female leads in the, the annual Gilbert and Sullivan production, right. was asked to go and give him the the check on live television, and I did. So I, I first met Jerry Lewis in person, giving him a check for my school. Years later, my uncle, Clarence Urist, who died like everybody else, uh, 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 shooting a John Wayne movie called The Conqueror, which they they wisely shot on a is a desert area in utah where they've been testing atomic bombs right okay and and they they carted tons of that irradiated dust irradiated sand back to the sound stages and my uncle and everybody else on that movie including Duke wayne died of cancer agnes induced by the yeah. radiation right from that okay there's books written about it right so anyway but he was working with jerry lewis and his movies, and he when I first came out to L.A., he took me onto the set of I don't know the the Office Boy maybe it was it was an incredible set on a soundstage of like a cutaway uh, uh, side of a, of a uh, office building with all these various offices in it, but he and he showed me that Jerry Lewis had invented the see-through tape-recorded video playback. Video
2: playback, right.
1: Because he was directing himself as the idiot, as he called that character, and he wanted to see if the takes worked. Many years later, I worked with a producer named Alan Katz who was doing a similar show to No Soap Radio. I'm not sure what it was called, but I was Jerry Lewis's straight man in a couple of skits that we did together. Wow. And we always hit it off well. So then he cast me in one of his movies, which ended up being released under the title Smorgasbord, and it was, a, or no, excuse me, Cracking Up.
2: Cracking that's Up, right. sure.
1: Which is another movie that I appear in with Peter Bergman, that was produced by Joe Roth and directed by Neil Israel. Wow. But that's another story. So he calls his movie Cracking Up, uh, and the scene that I was in was uh, <sighs> Jerry Lewis when he the. the the movie's about the fact that Jerry Lewis gives up smoking and becomes suicidal. And Herb Edelman is his psychiatrist. He goes to a, a meeting. Herb Edelman. <laughs> Herb Edelman. Yep. Yeah, great guy. Yep. He goes to a, his office for a session, and after it's over, he climbs out the window and goes out to the edge of a ledge, and he's going to jump to his death because he's so suicidal. And they don't know what religion he is, so they don't know. So they send out. Oh, yeah, right. yeah, I'm sorry. I'm uh, so let's take a lap break. Hey, lady. Okay. And, and all these different people. Kip King was a rabbi who came out to talk to him. There was a Buddhist monk. There was a Catholic priest. And there was me, a Protestant priest. And we had to edge our ways over every other, you know, religious person who was there to get close to Jerry to say, like, my son. You do not have to do this. You know, as a member of my church, say, I'm not a member of your church. All right. And then finally they send his mother out. And uh, this is on a ledge. Now we've got like Jerry Lewis and seven other religious clerics (laughs) lined up and his mother weighs 350 pounds. And she comes out, edges her way over all of us, all of our bodies to get to her son. And the, the weight of all of us causes the ledge to collapse, and we all fall into a net below, or a net bending. I don't know what it
3: was. So anyway,
1: <laughs> this was a very elaborate gag, as you could imagine. They'd spent two years, you know, designing it. Jerry and his his writing partner, oh, such a sweet guy. I can't remember his name right now. Bill Shepard. Right. Bill Shepard. And, and it was a hydraulic device that would lower slowly so we could all slide out, and then it would be uh, undercranked, so it looked like it was happening fast. Now, the day of the shoot, there was a little problem. And if you remember Spinal Tap, how they ordered the Stonehenge model, right. and they came up with the little tiny ones, not the big ones, that's what happened to this shoot <laughs> on the soundstage. On the soundstage you've been rehearsing on. <laughs> the The Scenic Department sent over... A backdrop of New York that was supposed to be, the long one, was supposed to be, let's say, 50 feet by 200 feet. And that was the one that would drop down horizontally or vertically, vertically. And the horizontal backdrop was supposed to be like 20 feet by 60 feet. And they mixed them up. They mixed them up so that the backdrop of uh, New York... It was supposed to hang vertically, was 20 feet by 40 feet, and the the one of the in any event, it didn't look real, and they scrapped the entire sequence, it cost them hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars at the time. Now in today's world, it would all be blue screened or green screened or you know ice cream for ice cream, <laughs> and they could have fixed it in the mix in a minute. Right. But no, no, no. They cut everything. I still get residual payments for my work in that movie, but I am nowhere to be seen. And now you know the rest of the story.